Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. For, for a long time, I worried about how I packed when I would go to, because I was like, should I have my underwear on top when they open my suitcase? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do I do? Because I was sure they were going to open the suitcase. Uh, so like, I worry about like, how should I pack? Where should I put this stuff? And it took a while before I said, I'm going to put all the dirty stuff on top. <laughs> That's Dr. Kambiz Ganabasiri. He travels a lot because he's one of the nation's preeminent scholars on Islam. He's a professor at Reed College and author of A History of Islam in America, From the New World to the New World Order. And this is Many Roads in Conversation. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. In this series, we ask folks to sit down and chat about issues experienced by immigrant communities in the U.S. Today, we'll hear Dr. Ghana Basiri in conversation with Flamur Vahapi, a writer, educator, and Ph.D. student at Pacific University in Oregon. The two talked for several hours about the history of Islam in the U.S., the role of Muslims in American life, and how 9-11 changed American perceptions of Islam. Today, we'll hear excerpts from their conversation. To start, Dr. Ghana Basiri takes us back to the very origins of the United States. Many Americans, as you know, think of Islam and Muslims as something new and strange to this country. What would you say about that? And when do you think, based on your research, um, Islam and Muslims were first introduced into this country and culture? So we need to make a distinction between Islam and Muslims when we think about this, that Islam as an entity up against which Europeans define themselves, especially modern Europeans define themselves goes back to the very beginning of the European discoveries of the Americas. Um, Columbus was trying to cross the Atlantic as a way of finding new trade routes uh, to bypass Muslim territories to be able to get into India. The Islam as a religion has been there from, from the very beginning, and then it continues to when we're thinking, when the American, the founding fathers were thinking about establishing the nation, questions came up about, you know, should Muslims have citizenship rights? Should they be able to actually run for office and so on? So um, in trying to define what it meant to be to establish a free society and to, to establish the United States, they were already thinking about not just issues of where, you know, black Africans and white Europeans and property owners and women fit in, but there was also the question of how Muslims would fit into the uh, fit in co- country. So from the very beginning, Islam and Muslims were part of the part of this story, and we have some records of Arab Arabic speaking Moors, right, that were part of expeditions of Cabeza de Baca um, in the 16th century that came in the early 17th century. We also have um, people who seem to be of Muslim background in New, uh, New Amsterdam and um, in New Netherlands and what's today Manhattan and New York. And when you look at some of the historical records of people writing about slavery too, and slaves, there were 
you know, books written about, like, if you want a slave, if you have a farm that is growing indigo, you want slaves from this area, and you want these types of people, they talk about, you know, getting slaves from, uh, who are Muslim. And they talk about some of them being literate, and they talk about them being, you know, uh, because of the backgrounds they have, being better as uh, slave drivers, uh, and raising indigo, and things of, uh, things of that sort. And they do so casually, right? It's not like, and there are these Muslims, let me tell you about them, right? Uh, they do so as though they're part of, so we suggest, you know, people very, very familiar with the, with the presence of, of Muslims in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, both in Africa and in the in the United States. So, to answer the question, like it was a new for them in the way in which today a student learning about these things would be like, oh my God, there were Muslims in antebellum America, and then after that we began to see immigrants coming in after the after the Civil War, and uh, from Eastern Europe, from modern day Arabian Peninsula, particularly Yemen area, from Anatolia, mm-hmm. you know, many from Ottoman territories, also from South Asia. And you know, the, the, that continues up until, uh, up until the very present. That's fascinating because you can see a lot of the uh, connections between Islam and Muslims and this country from um, very early on, right? And also we, we see that in um, the example of um, Jefferson, right? Thomas Jefferson having his commissioned his own copy, English copy of the Quran to make yeah, sure that he, uh, yes, yeah. thank you, to make sure that he understands who these people are, right? That they brought from across, you know, uh, the seas. He wanted to understand, you know, their backgrounds and experiences. And many of them were, you know, um, Princes, as we know from a lot of, you know, uh, sources that come out that were just like, you know, taken and brought here and then just lost all of that and had to start a new life under someone else's um, rule. And it it was a struggle, but it was a reality that um, it was here for a very long time and it somehow um, slowly um, disappeared. Why it is that this this history of entanglements that we were talking about that existed between Muslims and non-Muslims in the making of the Atlantic world gets erased is a really interesting interesting question. Some of it, I think, has to do with the way in which we actually ended up thinking about religion, right? So if Muslims, for example, came and they thought like, well, you know, oh, you know, Christianity, we know about this. So uh, you're talking about Jesus. Oh, you know, you have the Lord's Prayer. I have the Fatiha. You know, I have... And we could talk to each other, like yeah. So Fatah is the first first chapter of the Quran, Surah of the Quran, um, that Muslims recite in every prayer. Um, so it's the only part of the Quran that every Muslim has to have memorized. And so we have, for example, um, requests that were made of enslaved Muslims after they were freed. Particularly, I'm thinking about Abdurrahman Ibrahima here, who was asked at one point while he was on a tour to raise money to free his family, to buy his family's freedom. He was asked to write the Lord's Prayer because everybody was like, oh, look, he, became, he came to America and he became Christian and so on. And then instead of writing the Lord's Prayer, he ended up writing the Fatiha. And so people have looked at that and you could look at that and see it as like, oh, he was resisting the way in which he's being. And there's some truth to that, that he was resisting how he was being portrayed. But there's another way of seeing that as though if you ask a Muslim, what's your equivalent of the, of the Lord's Prayer? The Muslim is going to tell you the Fatah, like you know, that's that's the equivalent. So, like, if he ends up writing the ways we've thought about religion as like Christians on one side and Muslims on the other side through these borders, 
has led us not to be able to see some of the ways in which these Muslims actually use their religion, Islam, as a way of interacting with other Americans right? With, uh, at the time. So um, when we have seen those things, we didn't know what to do with them because we have, we have these conceptions of religion that see them as through stark boundaries right, or borders. Yeah. That's, I think, one of the uh, legacies of uh, white supremacy in not just the study of Islam in America, but uh, in the academy more generally, that it um, understands cultures as developing in silos, right? When culture develops in relationships with one another within, yeah. through contact. And so if you try to understand Western civilization and Islamic civilization and Indian civilization and so, and so on, um, you're going to buttress that, that idea yeah. of that white supremacist idea that cultures um, develop in isolation rather than through contact with one another. Yes, and we end up with buckets of civilizations and languages yes. and cultures, but they somehow never interact with each other, which is, of course, uh, in my, not uh, reality. In my department, we talk about them as petting zoos, right? So you're like, oh, go see the goats over there. Oh, a little bit of the <laughs> I like that. I like that. If if it's okay with you, I wanted to go, um, you know, um, come back closer to to um, you know more recent events. Like, what would you say were some of the um, obstacles to uh, Muslim immigration coming to this country? And I'm speaking mostly um, pre 1965. The some of some of the obstacles to immigration have to do with what was happening abroad, right? When missionaries in the 19th century go to special or and also people start going to the quote-unquote holy land that's under uh, ottoman rule at this time in the 19th century and when missionaries go to convert muslims they have they're very unsuccessful uh, the people that they end up actually being able to bring protestant missionaries that end up converting are other christians they didn't they, if the conduits were pro, uh, their missionaries for the immigration some of the immigration the sponsoring immigrants bring them over like muslims didn't have access to them uh, because they weren't converting to Christianity. Um, the other was we have some stories of people saying they're worried about going to a non-Muslim land because they don't know would they be able to pray over there, would they be able to practice Islam over there, and so on. So they themselves didn't want to go. Uh, the other are issues, restrictions that were placed in the United States that prevented Muslims from, that served as obstacles from Muslim immigration. Uh, one of them is because of the anti-Mormon sentiment that existed in the United States, polygamy was anyone who believes in, in a religion or ideology that allows for polygamy was forbidden to come to the United States. So the first Ahmadi missionary uh, that from the Ahmadiyya movement came to the United States in 1920 was detained at the border because he was believed to have uh, followed a religion that allows for polygamy. And uh, when his hearing comes out, he essentially says, yes, Islam allows for polygamy, but it doesn't say you have to be polygamous. Islam also says, follow the rules of the nation you live in. So I'm, if I'm here, I'm not going to be polygamous. And they allow him in. Then the other major obstacle becomes when the, the sort of Asian Bar Act of 1917 and the Immigration Act of 1924 that establishes quotas that was trying to keep the racial makeup of the United States the way it was in the 19th century. Um, by looking at, I forget the exact date, but an earlier date of what the census looked like and then trying to restrict immigration from those areas. So that meant most immigrants allowed in the United States by these quotas were coming from Germany or England. So a lot of these folks that came were often young men who came. 
you know, they were supposed to make money. Some of them would have wanted to stay, but they needed, they wanted to go back home and get married and come back or bring their families. So they couldn't because, because of these uh, restrictive immigration laws, if they went back, they couldn't come. If they left the U.S., they couldn't come back into the U.S., right? And then the other was when women came and uh, they wanted to raise their children and they wanted them to be in Sunday schools where they could learn and fraternize with other children who are also Muslim. So the mosque that was established in the um, 1930s in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, specifically was founded by this woman's organization um, that was began to raise funds for it with the idea that this would be a place in which children, our children could hang out with one another, learn about the religion, and it would be so. The presence of women and families led to also this, the trying to institutionalize Islam in, in America. There's an aspect of this legacy of colonialism that finds itself in um, the domestic history of the United States. Too. These immigrants are coming in and they're being allowed in, actually, in the, into the United States, either as students, right, who could contribute, or scholars who could contribute to the country, or as experts who are uh, providing services that the country is missing, or, you know, as just simply farm workers or laborers or things of that sort, right? They're coming in to provide these services. But they're being denied their citizenship rights. So, and that, that's another aspect of the sort of the distinction between actually Americans' policies towards immigration and, uh, and citizenship has a legacy in American Muslim history that's interesting if you could talk about it. Muslims were being often allowed in to come to the United, the, the United States, but laws were being passed, there were laws that prevented them from exercising citizenship rights. And um, their citizenship was actually taken away in a number, uh, in a number of cases, largely bec because of the color of their skin. We have examples of uh, Syrian, and when we talk about Syrian in the beginning of the 20th century, that includes uh, modern-day Israel, the occupied Palestinian territories, Syria, Lebanon, that greater Syria region, what in Arabic or uh, we call it Sham. People who come because they had lighter skin, and also uh, people from Turkey because they had lighter skin, the courts recognized their citizenship right. In 1915, Syrians, Syrian Arabs were able to get their citizenship uh, citizenship rights. And they were able to do so uh, by arguing in part that they're white and also arguing in part that you know Jesus came from where we're coming from. <laughs> right? When at the sim similar time, um, actually often even in the 1920s, uh, when more darker skinned Yemeni, Afghani, South and the South Asian immigrants were who had come and had become citizens were making the similar types of arguments that look we're considered Caucasians. The courts would look at them and say, "Well, no, you don't look it." And some would actually explicitly say that there's such animosity between Islam and Christianity that there's no way the founders wanted you to be citizens. One of the things about erasure, erasure works not by completely erasing, right? By keeping traces and then showing that those traces were insignificant, right? <laughs> like that's how it works. <laughs> um, so it's a very deliberate project, right? That takes me back to the example of Rumi, right? He is America's uh, best-selling poet, uh, but we're talking about a different kind of Rumi, not the Rumi that you uh, read um, in um, 
Afghanistan or Iran or Pakistan or in Turkey, right? Yeah. It's a whole different story. Uh, we read Rumi as, you know, if he is this um, new age kind of guy just throwing around aphorisms yeah. out of nowhere, out of his hat, right? And there's no connection to anything when we know, when we look at the story of Rumi, yeah. he was a scholar of Islam. He, by the way, taught Sharia law yeah. in Konya, Turkey. Uh, something that people you know, are afraid of. Uh, his father was a, was a scholar of Islam and his grandfather. But then you hear people um, like, you know, um, Opera Winfrey, she has, you know, a whole show dedicated to Rumi. Uh, you got Beyonce naming her kid Rumi. Uh, you got Ivanka Trump tweeting quotes of Rumi while her daddy is banning Muslims from entering the country, right? You can see the disconnect there yeah. from the real... Rumi so, and his work. I'm glad you brought up Rumi because, like, this is this is where you could see sort of this signature of my scholarship. So, like, the ways of thinking about this that are, I think, one is that they're coming, in, you know, people are coming and only appropriating Rumi selectively, getting rid of all the connections to Islam. The sad thing is, you have also Muslims who are doing that same type of thing in places like Iran and Turkey, and and you know, who are. Um, we're seeing him as like, yeah, you know, he was Muslim, but like we take Rumi for, for his you know, wisdom. Like we see him as a wise person. And, and so they're also doing this thing of that the kind of uh, ecumenical, divine love-centered understanding of Islam that existed at that time. They divorced that stuff from Islam, right? They, they want to see Islam as you know, doctrinaire, legal procedure and things like that. So they're Muslims who are doing this. They're people who are not Muslim who are appropriating Rumi in, in, in this way. But there's another way of thinking about it. Muslims figured out how to become the best-selling poet of the, right? So they may not be associating these ideas with Islam, but like all you have to do is scratch the surface and go back, and it's associated to Islam, right? There, there were these types of ways in, in by which religion was used as a way of creating cultural cross-cultural relations, and so there's a way of not seeing what you're seeing as appropriation as negative and actually seeing it as like a part of a historical process of Islam's globalization that we blind ourselves to if we have these narrow definitions of religion and Islam that only see it as, you know, the five pillars and what you get in your elementary school. Like Islam is the five pillars. Muslim civilization is the conquest. <laughs> if we get away from that and actually see that, no, Muslims are engaging their world and and they're sneaking Rumi in, right? <laughs> Still receiving royalties from Amazon.com. I want to talk about something more recent, 9-11. How did that affect our community? Um, and I'm talking about the Muslim community, but of course there's so many people non-Muslims who were also affected, you know, uh, we saw, you know, attacks against Sikhs and, and Jewish synagogues and all of this. And I'm, and I'm just reflecting my, on my own experiences just coming here after 9-11 and being afraid to ask where the local mosque was. Um, it took me a long time to figure it out through people because I was afraid to even Google it. Because what's going to happen? Is FBI going to show up to my door? Like, why did you Google local mosque? Um, so it, it was it was a struggle. It was, of course, I didn't I didn't have anyone. I, I was the you know the only Albanian speaker in in Southern Oregon when when I came here, and I didn't, you know have people to talk to, to connect with. Um, I just went to school and went home, and of course, um, um, my life was very very private because um, I was the different you know the person who was somehow different and. 
um, just didn't want any fingers pointed at me. Um, so that was my own struggle right? until, I, until I found my community and realized that you know, things were um, not as bad. With time, of course, things changed, but I know in the beginning it was, it was a struggle for a lot of people. I would greet people with, you know, peace be with you, right? And people would be like, hi. Um, other Muslims, right? Because they're afraid that they, somebody will hear them say, uh, peace be with you in Arabic, walaikum salam, uh, in return. Um, yeah, well, or they were afraid that you're some sort of agent who's trying to. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah, being at the at the going after 9/11 at the airport, and the TSA folks are all like, "Salam alaikum," I'm like, "Shut the hell up!" <laughs> what 9/11 ends up doing that is putting the presence of Muslims in America um, in public's imagination. Before that, people may have known some Muslims, they didn't really pay attention to it. First Gulf War of 1990-91, where Samuel Huntington gives us his Clash of Civilization uh, thesis, and uh, this idea that there's some sort of inherent animosity between quote-unquote Western civilization and Islamic civilization, and also Sino-Chinese civilization, essentially, that he talks about. You know, so that ex that had existed, but it was in policy circles. It was being debated, and you know there were the academics writing about it. Um, it wasn't something that was in the in the public's imagination that there's a Mus the Muslims in America. And after 9/11, people come to come to recognize this, and that has it goes two ways, right? So there's there's this animosity that takes itself takes on the form of Islamophobia. Um, because recognizing that there are Muslims also tells people that if you want to run for election, you know you could. You could start getting people to hate Muslims so that they other or get people scared of Muslims so that they would vote for you, right? There's another element of it too that uh, people recognize that, like, oh, you know, these are our neighbors, these are our doctors, these are our folks that we have lived with, these are people that my kids play with, and so on, and that, um, or these are members of a larger interfaith community that we have, and um, and working with ways of incorporating Muslims more into. Uh, cultural, political, social organization, civic life of, uh, uh, of America. Um, so we end up seeing both of those things happening after 9-11, both an attempt to bring Muslims on the, onto the stage, you know, producers of culture, as producers of ideas, as producers of uh, as social political leaders and so on. So it's not accidental that we get our first members of Congress who are Muslim after 9-11. And you get this other side of, oh, we have a target, <laughs> a valid target that we could, uh, we could point to, right? Yeah. This reminds me of that um, survey done by the uh, Civic Science in 2019, and they asked um, American parents, do you think we should teach uh, Arabic numerals in s to students in schools? And 56% of these parents said no. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Welcome to the 21st century. We do teach the Arabic numerals in every school. Every yeah, school. <laughs> the numerals we use are Arabic, yes. <laughs> but you could see, right, Islamophobia is there. Anything that has sounds Arabic or has the word in it or Muslim, you know, it looks yeah. um, it looked um, yeah. with suspicion, yeah. right? And and I um, I have to forgive me because I often when people ask me to talk about Islamophobia and things of that sort in public, I often say as a scholar, I shouldn't talk about these things because as a scholar, when I come in, I'm like, well, this is a trend and there's, these are the things that are going, there's a bigger picture and this is what's happening. But the real fact of the matter is people were afraid of talking in Arabic when they got on a plane. 
you know, fathers were telling their daughters, don't wear hijab because I'm worried about your safety when you're going out. Or, so there were real, real co consequences. So while IMAS as a scholar be able to say like, yes, there was like opening up of the stage and this thing that Islamophobia had a real major toll on, on, on people's everyday lives and the way they behave you know, for, for a long time. I worried about how I packed when I would go to, because I was like, should I have my underwear on top when they open my suitcase? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do I do? Because I was sure they were going to open the suitcase. One fortunate thing about paying attention to the history is that because these animosities didn't start at 9-11, American Muslims had been organizing locally and nationally um, to provide services for, for Muslims in America. Um, so um, there, was a, there was some support. There were supports from within the Muslim communities, and there were supports with the connections that they had developed with other faith organizations. My last question here is, in what ways has the experience of Islam changed over time um, as practiced in the United States? I'm, I'm thinking um, in the last 50 years probably, because obviously with the immigration of uh, many communities, as is the case with my own community, yeah. Albanian community, Bosnian community, and so on, of course they brought their Islam, but of course their children grew up here, great yeah. uh, grandchildren grew up here, and then that practice or, or way of observing faith yeah. um, sometimes changes. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, maybe the way I could get at that question is like, how it is that sort of distinctive American Muslim types of practices are being are being developed. I want to be careful about saying distinctive. That doesn't mean it's not happening in other places of the world because of Muslims' relationship with their American it's their American laws and American social context and institutional context. There are several things that we begin to see in the in when the 1965 Immigration Act passes that liberalizes the the immigration policies, gets rid of the quote the racist quota systems and allows people to come on their professional merits into the United States or whether they have family here and reconfigures the way in which immigration worked. Um, a lot of the Muslims that came were people who were activist Muslims who had been involved in anti-colonial movements in their, in their own countries. And they ended up defining Islam in a much more ideological way. And that's, that's part of like what had changed some of the these most sort of conservative understandings come uh, with the new immigration. The other thing that changes is that the public image of Islam prior to 1965, prior to the mid-20th mid century, was uh, sort of black Muslims. The fact that Islam among black Americans took root as sort of religion that, that provided a national identity for black Americans, a sort of sense of humanity for African Americans outside of uh, white Christianity, the history of Islam in America has deep social justice roots to it, particularly in the black American community um, that is now also being seen among uh, immigrant Muslims so that children of a lot of immigrant Muslims are not thinking about like their goals being like, I want to move to the suburbs and like become a doctor and get into Harvard or things of that sort. But they're actually thinking like, yeah, I want to grow up and start a clinic or provide these, become a social service worker or things of this sort. I was just going to add about the sense of community we're talking about, and that is uh, Robert Putnam. He says, in America, the most dangerous thing we could do is talking to our neighbors. And I'm like, that's so true. I've lived in a number of communities where, the, where people were very accept, accepting, no matter you know, what their background was, but others would just totally ignore. 
my family and I, just like as if we were never there. We would share stairs, right? Yeah. In an apartment, people coming out, in and out, would never even look at us for some reason. So uh, it's amazing that sense of individualism. I don't really need you. I am here, but but when I when I was growing up, and of course the Muslim community, of course um, there's diversity within that too. But it's very communal, right? It's all about the community. It's part of faith to take care of as many neighbors to your left, as many neighbors to your right, feed them, make sure that they're okay, and. And where I live right now, are people who say hi and, and bye, but that's it, you know? Yeah. And it bothers me sometimes because we take food to their places, right? You know, especially on a holiday or something like that. And people don't have that the guts, unfortunately, sometimes to bring back the dishes that we took the, the food with. That's just, just fascinating to me, right? That's what I want to touch on that sense of community. Yeah, and that's a, I think like that's the underbelly of democracy, right? If it, if you do everything for political reasons, then our relationship becomes like not you as a human being, but you as a vote. So like you're you voting maybe against my interests. <laughs> so I need to be careful whether or not we're politically on the same page yeah. or not, right? If we, if we don't have a larger sense of a community that goes beyond like democracy, right? Being living in a democracy. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. Many thanks to our guests for their time and expertise, and to the St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for allowing us to record there. This episode is part of the I Am an American series, generously funded by Anne Nato Campbell. It was produced as part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Dwyer. I did the audio editing, assisted by Greg Palmer. Music was composed by Corey Larkin. Our executive producer is the very understanding Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit our website, listen live at Portland Radio Project, or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.